Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the premier comic podcast where we talk modern marvels, Chronoskim, the classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me snicketing along on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And you can find the show on Twitter at X is for Podcast. We are so excited to bring you two amazing modern marvels today. We're going to be taking a look at Giant Size Thunderbird, an issue 50-some years in the making, and Marauders number 2, the continuing evolution of Marauders under the pen of Steve Orlando, who kicked the this whole thing off with his Marauders Annual earlier this year. But first, I just want to thank everybody for the amazing reception we've had for some of our newest projects here on X's for Podcast, as we've tried to continue to evolve the show to meet the needs of our listeners who are, it's growing every day, guys. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for joining in. We have launched a number of new ideas, and it all started a couple of weeks ago when we took a look at Spellbound, a six-part miniseries from 1988, and it had a new mutant's appearance, and I had just never come in contact with this really one-of-a-kind Wheezy Simonson miniseries before, and I found myself really pulled in to this incredible title, and it's been so exciting to see people react to it, and I knew that covering something that there wasn't access to readily would be a little bit iffy, but it's been really exciting to see people continue to interact with it and continue to reach out and tell us about it, and it's really been something that if you were waiting to check out, like if you said, I don't know what this is, these covers, I'm not sure what it is, it's the amazing story of Erica Fortune, a young woman who finds herself pulled into an unbelievable mystical destiny and sort of the frighteningly dark path it takes her on into madness and the way it draws in her friends and family and so much of it reads like a 1980s fever dream, but it really is a delightful read and a really good time. And we hope you guys check it out, both the title and our coverage of it. I also want to thank everybody for the incredible reception on launching XI4PAU with a look at the MC2 universe. Now we've dropped two episodes with that content so far, and we've got a whole lot more coming your way, including 11 more episodes taking a look at the MC2 universe. TK and I are so proud of this project, and we are so excited to share it with you. Additionally, we've also launched a partner show, The Billy Club, where we talk about Daredevil over on YouTube that's hosted by myself and series contributor Tori Sheehan, and the two of us longtime Daredevil fans are taking a look at the sometimes Crimson Crusader sometimes kind of yellow-bellied fear man from his earliest appearances back in 1964. We don't skip a single appearance of Matt Murdock or Daredevil, so it's pretty, it's it's worth the wild ride. <laughs> Again, guys, thank you so much for following us on this journey through sort of comic academia, comic historiography, just taking a look at the evolution of these books and parallel points and parallel times and trying to take something away from it that helps us understand the medium and the art better, and it's been so exciting to get to share that with so many listeners over the years and that everybody has been so receptive in a bigger way than ever to this last few months of programming. It's really been our honor. So please do yourself a favor. If you like the material you're hearing today and you're maybe mostly an ex-books person, 
check out some of our coverage of some of our non-X titles. Kieran Gillen's incredible Eternals, which we have done episode covering one through six. We have another episode coming out Friday, taking a look at the one-shots. I definitely recommend checking that one out. We have so much fun delving into the complex history of not just the Eternals, but the Marvel Universe and the ways it's evolved through metafiction. It's a really incredible time, and I just want to thank you guys so much for being a part of it. On to today's content, we're going to kick things off with Giant Size Thunderbird number one. I am so proud of this team. They're awesome coverage, and I already was a fan of this issue, and I'm a bigger fan than before, having had an opportunity to edit it. We hope you guys enjoy it, and don't forget, if you like what you hear, you might even like what you see, so don't forget to give us a subscribe over on Twitter at X's for Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of X's for Podcasts, where we get together weekly to talk about comics in various different formats. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at Dazzler AOA on Twitter and Instagram. That's Dazzler, like in the Age of Apocalypse. And I'm Steven, you can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star. And I am Robbie, and you can find me at Age of Polaris on Twitter. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And today we're here to talk about the focused totality of Thunderbird's family history. Absolutely. It's so exciting to get to know more about Thunderbird. And this team of creators that we have with us is outstanding. So we have Steve Orlando and Nyla Rose as our writers. Nyla Rose is an amazing AEW superstar. We'll talk about her a little bit later. We've got David Cutler as our penciler. Jose Marzan Jr., and Roberto Paggi as our inkers. Irma Kinvila is our colorist. And VCs Travis Lanham is our letterer and production overall. So I, I got to ask, like, who is familiar with Nyla Rose as a wrestler, as an entertainer, as anything? Have any of y'all heard of her before? I'm a huge Nyla Rose fan. She was the AEW Women's World Champion when I first started watching. She's the first ever transgender wrestler to ever hold a title on TV or in a major American promotion. And she's made absolute history with her title run in AEW. And ever since then, she's been an incredible heel. One of my favorite wrestlers. And I'm absolutely beyond excited to read a comic that she got to co-write with Steve Orlando. That's just, it's phenomenal. And I think it really shows... Yeah, it's it's amazing to see her. Like, if, if you've ever watched any AEW, like, her and her manager, Vicky, oh, I just love them in their interplay together. Vicky comes on, and she's just got this crazy voice, and you're like, oh, Vicky's here. Yeah, hell yeah. Looking into more about Nyla Rose, like, I, I've got to watch The Switch, because she started a TV show on Canada, like, one of the first to address transgender issues, like, broad, on broadcast TV. So I'm like, hell yeah, this is amazing. I got to watch this so does anybody else have any knowledge of nyla rose no this was actually the first time i've I've ever heard of her i i'm not really into the wrestling scene but this was so exciting i was i was really stoked to read this i loved this book so i look forward to more from her in the future it was really cool to get a perspective on writing thunderbirds issue from a woman who is native american oneda also african-american and i i think that her perspective on living in multiple worlds of marginalized communities 
lends itself so well to Thunderbird's like journey of dealing with his heritage as both a mutant and a Apache. Yeah, I think it's so important to get more creators from different diverse backgrounds on the X-Men comics because we get a lot more real perspective and I'm all for every single creator that we can get that's going to bring a new and different diverse background to these characters that we already know and love and already stand for so many metaphors for different people it's just amazing to see the creative teams grow and expand to celebrate the diversity of the readership as much as you know add bring more complex emotions to the actual story itself so now we're getting into thunderbird itself so i gotta ask too like what is everybody's history with thunderbird himself i personally was super excited to see thunderbird come back i loved his appearance in x-men chaos war like i was like wow we're actually getting some cool thought process behind how he acts and how he thinks besides just the two issues that we got him for before you know and it was great to see his interplay with banshee in that series you know and moira destiny <laughs> that was weird and to get more of his connection with his thunderbird god himself too actually so what is everybody else's experiences with thunderbird before this magical comic mine was also with chaos war since he wasn't really used as much he was a character that i always forgot about but with this it was really nice to get to know the character because it's also bizarre to like see a character that was like around before like a lot of us were like alive and then to for them to like actually come back in like books is like it's it's really different to see i mean he was like the ben parker of you know <laughs> the x-men universe like dead never to come back yeah this is the first like really new story for john in my lifetime and i think maybe all of our lifetime that is not like a flashback or you know a zombie appearance or anything like that but it's it's really interesting to see that and i am very glad that they're going back to the character and not just leaving him dead as a martyr for the mutant nation yeah i agree with that my only real experience with him was claremont's run so this is very new and very exciting i was a little excited actually that he was coming back i hope that they actually do something more with him past this issue because this was this was really good <laughs> luckily he'll be showing up in x-men red in issue number three coming up soon oh my goodness i yeah. did not know he was going to be in issue three again yeah i guess he's going to be maybe at least a semi-regular guest star in x-men red if not part of the main cast going forward i really hope that he becomes part of the main cast maybe joining the brotherhood of storm's mutants i could see him joining <gasps> the brotherhood over the x-men yeah i cannot see him joining the x-men again any team named the x-men but a brotherhood now that that's something hell yeah sign me up for that because like his appearance in x-men red one was outstanding it was out of this world i was like wow and this giant size thunderbird goes into a lot more of his emotional state i do love that also they brought up the weight that he feels because as comic readers we know him as the martyr mutant we know him as the mutant who was created basically just to show how dangerous being a superhero is he was the tashiar of the x-men universe yeah right down to the like extremely stupid way to die unfortunate i'm very glad that we're getting some justice for that uh coming up now oh yes agreed 
<laughs> and I do love that he has to deal with the weight of him having been that martyred character. He's clearly learned a lot of lessons from that. I mean, like he was extremely impulsive and reckless at the time. And a lot of that was bound up in his anger over his treatment by the United States through his time in the army, through the horrors he had seen uh, perpetrated against his people on the reservation and outside of the reservation. And then like having this extremely colonial, rich white dude boss him around and then put his like favorite son in charge of him cyclops like none of that ever sat right and he was dealing with a lot of like extreme rage it was very directionless at the time and i feel like since he's been back we have a a man who's looking for a direction like he says specifically like you know he's got the the colors of the four directions on on his outfit with the exception of the white and he said you know maybe that i'll add that on there once i find a direction for myself and i think i think he's starting to find that direction with reconnecting with his family with his community with learning to have mercy for his vengeance like i absolutely fully expected thunderbird at the end of this issue to kill edwin martinek or what whatever his last name is i don't know how to pronounce that the the werewolf guy and if anybody here remembers that character like there's every reason that thunderbird would end his life here and now and it would be in my opinion extremely justified but he decides to take a different route and he decides to listen to his elder and for for maybe the first time in a long time maybe ever we see thunderbird be a little bit more thoughtful and a little bit more of a person who might try something new and whether or not it was justified to kill Edwin like he makes the choice for his family and he I think that's it's it's not only growth but it also means that he's ready to explore and to figure out what exactly he wants to focus his energy on and I'm really excited to follow more of that absolutely his death was just so mind-boggling to me when I actually read the issues back in the day not back in the day when they came out but like when i had first gotten into comics and i decided to go back and read back issues this was really refreshing i'm so glad that we're actually getting some kind of like forward momentum with him now because for the longest time he was the guy who just didn't want to work with anybody and then exploded himself we're getting basically what he was actually going through instead of just seeing his anger and that is you know just so important for a character with so much like nuance and complexity yeah i feel like it's definitely important to see a lot of those different sides of him instead of just full-out anger and also i'm pretty shocked no writer has really like brought him back over the many decades that he's been gone (laughs) so uh it's definitely refreshing and i really do hope that going forward we get to see him build a lot of connections with all the different like mutant or x-men characters that have been introduced since he's been gone because uh it'll be really cool just to see to uh him explore more of like a lot of the different things that he's missed out on oh agreed he has missed out on the majority of x-men history as we know it so to see him navigate this new world is gonna be magical and i i cannot wait i cannot wait i can't wait to see more of his interaction with his brother now that like he goes from seeing him as a little kid to like taller than even him yeah i really appreciate that i that was something i really loved in their initial reunion it made me like want to cry seeing how much taller jimmy is than james now and we get in this issue 
a little bit of backstory there is that he got that from his grandfather, who apparently was extremely tall as well. And I thought that was a, just a really nice familial touch. And that he seems to have gotten his grandmother's attitude as well, which I feel that like she definitely reminds me of James a lot. And I thought that was really nice. She's such a cool character and she's really fun. Her whole like I used to wipe your ass and I can still kick it with giving him that little like fake sock on the jaw. <laughs> It's so touching. It's so beautiful. The story is really heartwarming, and I love seeing these family together, but I felt like the art really brought home the emotional impact. David Cutler, who uh, did the art on this, is like really, 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 really good. I don't think I've ever looked at any of David Cutler's art before, but it's fantastic. I should point out, David Cutler is a member of the Halibu Micmac First Nation, and Irma Knievela is astonishing on the colors. Knievela really, really makes this like warm southwest desert color to it that is just so beautiful but it also like brings in all this like warm fuzzy feeling toward the end with the blues and the pinks of the sunset and like the the gold of the desert sands reflecting up off and then when warpath steps out he just looks so shiny and cool and new and like out of place in this environment and i just think the art like really made this all work so well the art is amazing in that aspect i do love the data page that we get just explaining his choice of costumes and the colors that he chose seeing him talk about how his giant sized uniform was not something he would have chosen for himself particularly poignant because his brother went to wear it on in the hellions you know just as a homage to his brother having died in that first mission the use of the colors for the outfit was amazing and i loved learning that bit about what these colors mean to the people themselves even before this issue came out on twitter Scotty R was talking about the importance of the colors too. So, you know, I just, I love the more that we get out of diverse creators, the more we get to learn ourselves as readers about these other cultures and, you know, see similarities and see differences between everything. Absolutely. The art was gorgeous. I was obsessed with it the whole time. I couldn't believe like how much beautiful like work and care went into this issue i and i loved the costume i was so stoked when i saw the design on twitter when it leaked oh agreed agreed so much thought went into the actual outfit design love it i love the story that we're presented with too thunderbird is trying to go home trying to find his grandmother and he's presented with a problem he is arrives at the reservation and all the adults are taken because the one thing that i really like that we've seen that's been consistent throughout the Marvel 616 universe is that when native cultures are presented with anti-mutant hatred they band together to stop it because they've seen what the hatred does to them so they do not want to see that brought forward to anybody else so it's always really good to see that and i love seeing intercommunity solidarity among marginalized groups i think that's so important and so vital i wish it went the other way more often because i mean like as a result of mutant activity camp verde did get completely annihilated i'm not saying it was by uh, the mutants that we like but like i don't see a lot of Krakoa like reaching out and helping indigenous communities around the world maybe in the way that they probably could do a better job of especially since they're headed by like largely white rich people I think that as much as I really always love seeing like Native American communities or marginalized communities stand up for the mutants in their myths because of how good that works for the metaphor I think it needs to work the other way for it to be a good metaphor that's a good point actually because Krakoa is an extreme like probably the richest nation in the world right now they could do a 
lot to actually give back to these communities that have helped them as well. It's that whole, you know, should billionaires really exist question? And no, they shouldn't. You know, is Xavier in creating this mutant haven and not helping out these other communities that have helped him out in the past? This is a really interesting question. Actually, is he doing enough to give back? Which I think the answer is astoundingly no. I think that's a large, loud no, especially since like Beast is running a mutant CIA and committing war crimes and genocides over in Central and South America. Does the mutant nation deserve this kind of like solidarity from marginalized community in, in America, for example, like this community? I don't know that they do anymore. And that's a really hard truth of Krakoa to swallow. So I personally would like to see like, I mean, maybe Thunderbird can have an influence. He doesn't have much of an influence on Krakoa as it is, but I'm hoping that his efforts in the future can lead to a change in that kind of that kind of attitude from both the mutant nation and mutants in general. Although, I mean, we've seen mutants stand up for marginalized communities in the past, but it's largely been the X-Men or like individual mutants. And now they have power and they could be wielding it. That's a really good point. I didn't think of that. And it's funny how just like a couple <laughs> really awful people slash characters can make you really take a step back and realize, do they actually deserve it from the other minority communities? Maybe like, not. <laughs> how, could, how could anybody ask this this Native American community that lives on a reservation to like go out and go up for mutants who live on like a paradise island and have all, all of the wealth in the world and all of the power. Like, I love that for mutants. I want that for mutants. But, like, there are other people suffering. But It's very possible that maybe because Krakoa is... I, I mean, I'm, I'm not really sure because apparently a whole last year went by. But, like, maybe because it's still so new, they're still trying to find their bearings. Or maybe because a bunch of white people are in control of it in the X office. So, they, I you know, that's maybe more thought likely. about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah and not only that, like, this community is at risk directly from Krakoa's enemies. Like, this is an Orcus plot. Orcus has teamed up with a famously bigoted anti-Native American piece of shit, this Edwin guy. Edwin M. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, so I'm just going to call him Edwin M. But, you know, he in X-Force Negative One was part of the genocide of James and John's Camp Verde area at the hands of Strife. Like, this is somebody who's had a long history of being, like, the Mr. Sinister of, like, Native American mutants in, in his own way. And now he's, he and his group are teaming up with Orcus and as a result, not I'm not saying that this is at Krakoa's fault, but if Krakoa's enemies are specifically weaponizing like the most marginalized mutants in the world, if if these are Native American mutants living in America, some of the most marginalized mutants in the world are being weaponized against Krakoa now. Like they have a responsibility to help and to put a stop to this. I was like really excited that they brought him back as the villain because I thought that that was very fitting. Uh, oh God, I just, I really hope that there is a continuation to this specific story. This is what I want to see. Yeah, because I mean, as much as like, I totally understand, like you can't put these people at further risk, you know, but they're already being preyed upon by Orcus. They're already being preyed upon by the Heritage Initiative and Martinek. And it's like, would killing this guy, would killing this guy further harm the community? or stop a dangerous predator? That's a question that I was really left grappling with in this issue. And like, it does feel like the story has a lot more places to go because are we just supposed to believe that Edwin is just going to now give up on his like decades now of harming this community? I I would severely doubt it. And without Thunderbird and Warpath around to like defend these communities, it's going to happen again. I did like that this issue very specifically like makes parallels to, you know, like what the US government has done with the Tuskegee experiments with Henrietta Lacks 
projects with numerous Native American communities around the country with Black and Indigenous populations. And that's the thing that's shown up in Jerry Duggan's X-Men. And that's the thing that's showing up here with a lot, I think, a lot more resonance to the cultures involved. Um, we're seeing more and more of this whole like scavenging of marginalized people's bodies for weaponization and for medical advancement. And we even get a little bit more of that with the mention of Revelation. Do any of you know who Revelation is? I do not. Uh, no. Revelation is a mutant who showed up in Wolverine Punisher Revelation, a four-issue miniseries in which um, Revelation is a mutant, uh, like a semi-technological mutant who had been captured and experimented on by uh, anti-mutant people. Essentially, today they would be Orcus members. They got free, and their mutant power is to emit a death aura, uh, sort of like Omega Red, but without any control over it or even knowledge that it was happening. And it was killing people. So between Wolverine and the Punisher, the only recourse they eventually figured out, because they are unimaginative in the extreme, was to kill Revelation. So Revelation is still dead as of this moment. In one of the data pages, we find out Martinek and whoever communicating at Orcus have devised an email system built using dead cells stolen from from Revelation's corpse in order to create an email system with encryption that makes it so that if you are not the intended reader, the death aura kills you, which is just so wildly cartoonish in its villain, but so disgustingly evil in a real life way. Right. I was actually going to say, it was very like, what is this? This is so confusing <laughs> kind of thing, because I was like, I, I don't know, sometimes I guess I think too hard about stuff like that and how that works, but it was yeah. very cartoonish. I'm glad somebody said it. <laughs> It is I mean, cartoonish, but right, not necessarily a bad thing. I just was shocked by it. <laughs> yeah, and just like we're getting over and over this hitting home on like the in invading and violating the sanctity of marginalized people's bodies and using them for whatever advantage the humans or the white people or the colonizers or the settlers want to use them for. And it's a theme that is getting gaining strength and gaining traction, I think, over time with the recent Krakoa books. But like no no. Where does it really feel as weighty as it does right here? And I thought that was so incredible. It is amazing to see comics addressing some of these real life things with some better metaphors than they did in the past. I, I know Morrison kind of touched upon the idea of human society using mutant parts to create new powers and new races of people could, you know, maybe take the best parts of the mutant bits that they wanted, you know. Um, so it's it's amazing to see a more direct metaphor being used to historical allegories that of atrocities not only our government but many governments around the world have committed i mean we can't forget what they've done in canada we can't forget other cultures around the world you were saying about the Jap what japan did in with the frostbite i was talking about the imperial japanese army's experiments on chinese people a horrific war crime that resulted in the u.s's modern knowledge of how to treat frostbite and things like that i learned literally yesterday while i was on a call about how apparently planned B pills, you know, for preventing pregnancy or medicated abortion. Plan B pills were originally apparently tested on like, you know, marginalized women, uh, poor women in housing projects in Puerto Rico. So there's a lot of like medicine that we have and now take for granted that has been built off of very immoral experimentation on the most vulnerable communities around the world and in America. So it's, it's something that... 
has so much real life history that cannot possibly be covered by comic books all in one, but it's something that I like to see a threat built up that is turning the mutant metaphor into something a little bit more direct and pointed. And I think I think that's necessary. I really appreciated a lot of Thunderbird's lines in this. He's just such a fucking badass. Like when he goes and he's like, anybody who doesn't want to pay for those words better head for the door now. Yes. At the end when he does the like, it's, uh-huh. it's like a, like, I, I don't want to call it a Rambo thing, but when he's like, I'm consequences. Like, yeah. oh my god, I loved that moment. Loved it. He's so cool. I his oh my gosh, this was the best writing I could have like ever prayed for. Like he was angry, but it wasn't like in the most obnoxious. He's not gonna work with anyone kind of way. You know that that just leaves you so I, I don't know how how to say it. Just like you you just can't relate. You couldn't relate to him before, and now I feel like he's a lot more relatable. Too. Well, yeah, the way He's Claremont so wrote him, yeah. the, the way Claremont wrote him was very clearly the way like a white guy looks at a Native American person who's kind of angry at him and is like, man, he's angry for no reason. He's just angry all the time. Why is he so angry? I don't understand. Right. It's just so stupid of him. It's frustrating and it's insulting. And I've always hated that about the way Claremont wrote that wrote him originally. He is a person who's angry for really good reasons. And here he's written as a lot more righteously angry. Like he's understandable. He's relatable. He's not he's not just like spiteful and like I'm a- angry for no reason like he was never angry for no reason but often that's the tone that Claremont had written him in and right. I didn't always appreciate that when I would read it I'd be like why are you why are you making him look so like kind of like pointlessly angry like there's always a good point to being angry at a settler for any Native American person there's always a good point to that but like the way Claremont had him written at the time always felt to me a little bit like patronizing and this doesn't feel like that in the slightest it was very patronizing. He did not add, like, the real nuance there. It did come off very pointless a lot of the times. And here it was just so, it was directed. And it was just, oh my gosh, so phenomenally executed, I thought. We've got this amazing story. And it's got these really in-depth pieces that once you once you read it and you really let it sink in, the story is, like, so deep on levels that you can't even see at first and you've got to reread it several times and you've got to think about it and know a little bit about the creators and know a little bit about the history so i'm so glad that we got this story as the first real feature for thunderbird since he's come back we talked a little bit about the art i did love the jump between present day to the past and the stark difference in the coloring of that i loved how they used simpler colors to show a time that us as common readers you know can look back on as a simpler time right so like and i i do love that xavier is drawn there just looking like wretched as hell (laughs) where were you guys at with the flashback in this issue i loved it so much i really really enjoyed the juxtaposition of the artist doing um you know the art from the current time and the art from back then it was so exciting to like to look at and i i just oh my god i i like lived for that page uh robbie what did you think about that page oh i really liked it and what i really love about them using that scene is that a lot of people might have not even touched that issue before or it's been like a long ass time since they've read it so it's a really nice it, it was very needed for the issue yeah it was nice to bring that back i think it's word for word 
I think so. Yeah, panel for panel too. Yeah, panel for panel, word for word. It just looks so good. I think the art is really clean. The colors are beautiful. It's just it has a retro feel, but it like looks better. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Colors art throughout is like really great and expressive and flexible. And Thunderbird looks hot as fuck in this issue. And yes. like like he has so much amazing expression on his face that gets across what he's feeling, which is not always just rage, but sometimes it's surprise. Sometimes it's like a deep sad. Sometimes it's loneliness and it's beautiful. It's gorgeous art. I, oh my gosh, I really hope that we get to see them on another book because I just, I really want more of this art. It was so stunning. Yeah, this, especially the pencil and color combination, like the anchors do very good work. Pudgy is a workman and always throws shadows in the right places for me. Oh, yeah. Between them all, I would really love for this combination, this whole team, maybe to get another crack at Thunderbird. Yes, absolutely. They were just, they were so many little moments like in the book itself like uh thunderbird's makeup was it it changed throughout yes. the course of the like that was phenomenal in the very beginning like he's wearing pants drawstring pants which i thought was really cool because it was like a subtle like you know nod to the fact that he's a very large tall man so it was just, ugh, just little things like little tiny like specks of things that just added to the flavor of the book i was oh in love with it mm-hmm. like one of my very favorite parts of it was that Lozen, his grandmother, is a big fan of UCWF from back in the Hell day. Yeah. Yes! Yeah. I, I love her being like, yeah, I can create a superhero costume like Screaming Mimi or Titania from the UCWF. <laughs> like, I, was, I was so excited when she said Screaming Mimi. It was like, oh my god. Yeah. Uh, I Like, she absolutely would have been a big like Luna fan back in the day or something. Like, it's, it's very cool, and I love the nod to the Marvel Comics' own wrestling federation with powers back in the day i don't know if that came from nyla rose or if i think they're both uh, wrestling fans i would say because i believe steve orlando already knew nyla rose before writing this comic but like i think that was so cool i think that's a nice little element and i also just love seeing wrestling fans represented in comics yeah i love that there's such a bridge between a wrestling fan and comics fan i mean there should be right like the stories are all very similar right you've got in in wrestling the, the kayfabe you've got these beautiful like epic like story arcs of good versus evil and you've got like these dynamic villains you've got like bright colorful costumes you've got like the craziest athletic moves so like does that sound like superhero comics or what right so like just to see the you know nyla rose get her shot to write an issue with steve orlando to see you know even cm punk has done some thor writing too uh, on an annual so like just to get those creators those performers who love comics so much and they have such a big hand in creating their own storylines in wrestling especially in AEW to see those performers get to become creators in a craft that they obviously love is amazing to me and to see them kind of brute some of it back into the story love it I hope Nyla Rose really loves Screaming Mimi and Titania like those seem right up her alley (laughs) absolutely yeah yeah maybe Titania a little bit more than Screaming Mimi I would imagine but (laughs) Melissa softened over the years she's turned face but uh yeah i also love the implication that she didn't know what screaming mimi has been up to since she left you know the <laughs> wrestling scene <laughs> and that's kayfabe <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, I just, uh, I really loved it so much. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wonder if the population at large knows that Screaming Movie is Songbird, or if, like, because the, the whole thing about the Thunderbolts was that they were hiding, right? Mach 1 is actually Iron Man villain, the Beatle, and Songbird <laughs> is actually retired wrestler Screaming Movie. <laughs> Yeah. Moonstone is secretly meteorite. I had completely forgotten that Moonstone ever went by another name because I felt like she was just Moonstone the whole time. Oh yeah, she went by meteorite. Uh, I love love Carla so much. She's such a great villain. Like not not yeah. an actual likable person in any stretch. Oh god, but... no. <laughs> such such an amazing villain. I just uh, I really hope they bring her back again soon. The the world found out that they were villains, but like I'm just like, do they know that she was a wrestler? Do they connect her with the screaming <laughs> Mimi? who was like on tv well the only place i even remember seeing screaming mimi before thunderbolts was a weird dazzler issue where they're in jail together and they have to have some kind of weird jail dance i don't know oh my gosh i forgot about that (laughs) i I completely forgot about that (laughs) that dazzler series is questionable sometimes i love her but As we wrap this up, what are some takeaways you had from this issue? Any final points? I would just say I can't wait to see more of their grandma, and I want to see her show up in New Mutants. I want to see her show up in X-Men Red. She's got that gate. Hopefully they just give her permanent access as a human to just go wherever she wants. I want to see her, like, on Krakoa, just, like, wrestling with the MLF, watching the MLF wrestle because they seem like they would be into wrestling. Yeah, forearm for sure. He's a technical grappler. Fantastic. (laughs) I really would love to see grandma Lozen more i would love to see her hanging on krakoa and visiting more path i'd like to see them visiting her more like maybe spending more time out on the ranch one thing that i really want to see is like for thunderbird and i guess other characters that have been gone for so long i think it'd be pretty fucking funny if they had like a character like dupe doing like a presentation like a powerpoint oh. to show like character like what's been going on all these years i would love that that'd be great yeah because yeah. you know like I imagine a lot of these characters that have been gone for so damn long, they were like, well, I don't know, like, I, I, I guess someone would have to, like, explain to them what's been going on, so that would be a funny little... Like in touch. Lost, they have, like, a Dharma initiative in, like, orientation <laughs> video. I had a really weird moment at the beginning of this issue where, I was, where James is walking down the road, and he's thinking about, like, how he died, and then, like, everything else has happened since then, and now he's back, and it feels like it was only yesterday, and I'm like, that's right, 1970 feels like it was yesterday to this guy <laughs> like i know that in the comics it's been probably about 10 years right like somewhere around there but like <laughs> he's last been around in american culture in what the marvel universe's version of the 1970s so like things have changed things have really changed there's tiktok now john going forward uh for me i just want to say that we have backstory finally like really introduced for this character and i really hope we keep it i don't want to lose it i want to keep moving forward with him his rage as an indigenous person is much better defined given a much clearer voice i have issues when it comes to how characters like him with that trauma and rage are treated by cis white straight writers and it's that often gets lost uh north star is actually one of those people because people confuse bitchy queer with queer rage but yes. it's just it's so mm-hmm. it's so frustrating and like it's not it's not necessarily the the fans it's the writer themselves not properly translating that to page and we've only just recently gotten a much clearer definition a, a clearer view of queer rage from north star instead of him just coming off like a bitch and this is the same with 
John. This is the same with John Proudstar. So I just want to see more. <laughs> this is exactly why we need creators to come from different backgrounds than just cis white straight men. Because Correct. that it's like, it's just like the prime example of it. Because we're getting really nuanced takes of these characters. Whereas before we were just like, they're angry for this. They're angry for that. That becomes their one defining character beat when other people write them like that. Whereas when you have people who have actually experienced these traumas, you get them as a whole person and not just defined by their anger or their bitch or whatever. I desperately need a wall size poster of Thunderbird and North Star saying Ekeb now. Yes, same. Oh my God, please. I want that more than anything. <laughs> I really, really love how the very last page of the comic is a full page splash panel of him doing what we saw him do in his very first appearance, his very first panel. He was running around with some buffalo, racing them. That was such a great, great page. I, oh my gosh. Everything about this issue was just thought of with the most beautiful care. Yeah, somebody who cared about Thunderbird wrote this issue, and like that is that is new and is wonderful. Hey everybody, Nico here one more time. I'm really enjoying the evolution of Marauders from a book about kind of like underground pirates to way above ground pirates with space. It's really interesting to see how you can take a core concept and transform it so dynamically across similar but very different ideas. And we hope you guys enjoy our coverage just as much as we enjoyed recording it. Don't forget, you guys can check us out every Monday looking at XI4PAU, currently examining the MC2 universe. On Wednesdays, we take a look at new releases with Modern Marvels. And Fridays, you can check out XI4P Premiere, where we take a look at events, special issues, talk to creators, and more, as well as Chrono Skimming Classics, picking up back in 1984, where we left off when we were a show looking at old issues before jumping into the modern era with Hox Pox. Now, we're going to make one stop for Asgardian Wars next Friday, just a special story that's important to so many of us that was kind of like a conversion point for our friendships and we just really wanted to do that story justice before we moved back to 1984 looking at the classic original secret wars 1 through 12 that changed so much for the marvel universe but until then enjoy this look at the marvel universe with marauders number two as always guys i'm nico action you guys can find me on twitter and instagram at nico action n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n and until judgment day keep those mutant lights lit those cohen gateways open remember erica fortune is not a mutant and you should check out Spellbound's coverage to figure out what that means. And until next time, we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to Chandelar Airways, where we are making our way straight through the heart of Shi'ar space into the history of the X-Men. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me snickton along on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I guess that makes me Jake, your stewardess supreme. You can find <laughs> me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel, O-H Mega Sentinel. And that makes me Raven, aka Dame Red Thread, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. So yeah, come on over, start a conversation. Trust me, I have so many opinions. <laughs> she does. E I'm Arturo. E Atusabe. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And we hope you survive this experience. Unlike the horrifying monster conglomeration thing that Lockheed finds at the start of this issue. 
that means we're here to talk about Marauders number two. And Marauders number two is, of course, the second issue, but kind of sort of the third issue of this amazing new era brought to us by Steve Orlando and Eleonora Carlini. We have Matt Mila on color art with VCs Ariana Mar and Clayton Cowles on letters and production. Tom Muller coming in on design with Kel Gu on cover art so all right i want to point out that maybe everyone hasn't noticed that this is like happy throwback book on top of being like crazy new revolutionary book but this thing is even fucking called extinction agenda so like we are talking about a title that is thoroughly steeped in marvel history now for a title that's only been around for a few months marauders has already made quite a splash for itself and i would love to get everybody's baseline as we head into issue two how you felt about the annual and issue one and where that put you in advance. I know for me, I wasn't as crazy about the annual or the first issue, but this second issue really delivered on something story-wise I was maybe missing, and it really was a pretty good pickup for me. Well, for me, I actually did not get a chance to read the annual, but I read the first issue of Marauders, and I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is, oh, uh, I don't know what this is going to do. I don't know what this is going to be. I really hope they find their footing quick, but it's not quite clicking for me. And then stepping into issue number two, the art made the story click and I love it. I am waiting for a few more issues before I really like lock in an opinion on this. I'm enjoying it so far. It's a big cast of a lot of characters that I'm very interested in. So I'm hopeful that, that it all works out. But right now for me, there's almost like just too many people on the board and not enough, I don't know, screen time for each one or development of each one. But it's only the second issue. I think it's really cool that Steve grabbed this book and changed the mission a little bit and made it more, you know, search and rescue. I don't think that we needed to go to Shear space right out of the gate, but here we are and it's all good. I'm with you. It's just, it was I'm too fast, too fast, space too fast too fast it's just like just right out of the gate we're okay we're leaving earth because there's we're looking for maybe the first mutant it's interesting but it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for me this is something we had talked about in the previous issue and coverage of the previous issue and something on the one hand that i agree with in terms of being a reader and having things that i want in the book i think what i wanted was not for them to go right into shiar space but i feel like the pushback that i gave gave myself was that it's something that happened in New Mutants and I also didn't want it then but I ended up really loving the story so I've kind of decided to give it a little bit of a break I mean my thing is I'm constantly torn between like being wise enough to know that it's completely unreasonable to think that books just should do the things that I want them to do and being a little brat that just wants every book to do what I want it to do and the problem with the Hickman era into the Destiny of X era is previously things were just randomly happening that were exactly what I wanted all of the time. And as we've kind of expanded in storylines and things have changed and new writers have come on, there's just a diversity of stories being told that are really fantastic and different, but are oftentimes not just, they just happen to not be what I want to see. The annual of Marauders was kind of much more in the vein of where I wanted the book to go and where I expected it to go. I love this team being kind of terrestrial in terms of being on Earth. They can be on the sea. I love that. Going around, helping getting mutant drugs out. I loved the first run of Marauders and I kind of thought we were getting 
an expansion of that with maybe some, you know, references to 2099 in there. Who knows? But it, this first and second issue, they've set a very different tone. We're out in space. We have gone real hard out into space. And that's not what I want. But like I said, other books have not given me what I've wanted at times. And I've ended up enjoying them. So I'm along for the ride for now. I love the space pirate anime that is happening now. That is making it so much more enjoyable for me. Because I'm like, for once, they've just gone ahead and instead of sort of hinting at we're going to 11, they've gone to 11. And that's what I've been expecting. Like, yeah, you can you can be on the te- terrestrial sea and like Madripoor and have some fun and whatnot. But honestly, I think catapulting them into space and turning it into an anime where everything's a little bit extra from the get go kind of works for me. And it makes it it makes it a more fun title versus it being a very you know serious and somber title where we just well, okay we have to address some deep issue just like everything else you could still address a deep issue but now they're having a lot of fun with it i love this book actually i've been really enjoying steve orlando's whole three issues of it so far counting the annual because it seems like he loves x-men history and it seems like he really wants to tell a story that pulls from the past and pulls from the future fucks with time it's just fun i had no expectations going into what the plot for this would be because i, I felt like marauders volume one told a pretty open and closed story and you know just left our our cast with like potentialities i've just been kind of interested in the story that's being woven i've always liked cassandra nova as a concept and i really like the integrative elements that steve orlando is weaving here by bringing her in i like shiar stories although i don't always love when they go to shiar space but as sort of a development of the sea pirates to space pirates thing it feels like a, a fair progression and i like this idea idea of making Eric the Red more complicated because, you know, the red bondage Viking suit was hot, but it's old. And I like seeing this twist, making him more important, giving him a new costume, making this whole thing seem a little less like ridiculous 70s and a little more like this is an old thing that's just, you know, being rethought and represented. Yeah, I I like the first couple of issues because they're showing us how these team members interact with each other, how Kate is leading this newer group, how Somnus is coming into his power and using it creatively, you know, Bishop and Psylocke, Dakin and Aurora, Tempo flexing everywhere. There's just a lot of really fun stuff going on. And the story is slow, but it's still happening for me. It's still rolling along. And I like the seed being planted with that first page in Newark that's going to bring us back to Brimstone Love, who as a X-Men 2099 fan, I'm, I was so excited to see in that annual. So I'm, I'm here for it. I'm here for all of it. I love this art i love this like not quite uh manga not quite like purely marvel house style it's it's giving me all the dynamic energy that i need for like a fun space pirate book i think fun is the name of the game because whatever hesitations or whatever i even have with with the writing like the fun of the story comes across so so resonantly and and it feels also like Steve Orlando and Eleonora Carlini are having fun creating this book. So that is infectious and I'm a sucker for it. It's that. It's exactly that. It's a lot of fun. And, you know, this is kind of like the biggest month of Steve Orlando's career. He dropped in the same week. He dropped Spider-Man 2099 Alpha, Giant Size Thunderbird number one, and Marauders number two. In one week, he dropped three major titles. He seems to be given an extreme 
extraordinary amount of permission to play with 2099. Now, this show has begun a deep investigation into the world of the MC2-niverse, uh, the MC2 line being this sort of short-lived attempt at basically with the Ultimate Universe and 2099 were attempts at, you know, a parallel narrative at Marvel Comics. 2099 is remembered really uniquely. Like, a lot of people aren't, man, those were the stories. They're like, man, that was the vibe. Like, there's this sort of Rayan Graf looking you in the eyes at the end of the day and saying, tell them we had a time, didn't we? And you just have to nod along with your newly red hair and say, we did, we had a time. And it's this sort of magical explosion of a celebration of the silliest things about X-Men in some ways. Like, I really didn't need Eric the Red coming out looking like the worst ever leather daddy, but he's here and I'm gay for him. Let's do this. I am in the minority, perhaps, and Cassandra Nova to me is such a perfect villain. I don't want anyone to use her ever again. I'm like crazy in that way. I'm like, no, she stays in the closet. No, I'm no. with you. I'm Give with you. me She's... murder auntie. Give me but murder she, auntie. But she's so good. She like exists so perfectly in history. I loved what and who she was. Other writers after Grant Morrison that have picked her up, I think have been a little bit less successful. She's like a radioactive character. Like it's hard to use her, I think, at this point. And, you know, I, I, I'm curious to see what Steve's going to do with her for sure. You have to give it the chance. I mean, yes, some people have tried in the past, but I don't think we've had such nuance or such thought through storylines as we are getting in this current era. I think there was a lot of really ham fisted stuff in the past. I think that they're going to have a lot more nuance now, but also I think she's needed and I don't think we're supposed to like her because I don't, I don't want her because I love her. I want her because I want to see what kind of chaos is going to ensue and how people are actually going to have to think through teaming up with people like this. Yeah, I was going to say, I think I would typically be on your side about this, Nico, like just wanting her encased in Morrisonian Amber and never touched again. But the fact is, I already know that we didn't get that. I know that other creators wanted to use her, didn't get to use her. We didn't did get to use her, and I didn't love what he did. You know, we have the Owl Queen storyline. Those are all things that, like, are seared into my memory. And so now that she has been kind of used in ways that I really don't like, I'm happy to see somebody do something that is radically different, while also acknowledging that maybe it's actually not radically different. Maybe it's just, like, she is the exact same person that she was in the Morrison era, but you know, she has whatever kind of leash or collar on her. The other thing I'm really interested in investigating for Cassandra Nova is, you know, in this era that we're seeing a side of Charles Xavier that I think is the best and worst of him. Seeing this reflection of that best and worst, I think is really important right now. And like Raven said, I don't necessarily like her. I'm I'm not necessarily trying to get out of this that she is going to be a superhero and somebody that like people are looking up to one day. But if Charles Xavier can be the head of a mutant nation that we all think is really beautiful and kind of in some ways aspirational, there is another side of Charles Xavier and Cassandra Nova that is important to investigate and might have something good in it worth aspiring to if the character as a whole is still problematic and villain. Yeah, I mean, I think 
think that Cassandra complicates our question of what constitutes a mutant. Um, and, you know, going further with that, how we deal with a creature like that when we are making a statement about mutant amnesty and, and having a restart. She's on a, we found her on a uh, an obscured Krakoan prison island. She couldn't even go into the pit, which I think is very interesting. But I like Steve Orlando's characterization. I liked the data page that he wrote because I felt like it was really integrating some of the most important elements of the character. And I just loved that the first we saw of her, she was vivisecting organs out of Krakoa. There was something so right about that for her, something that really matched to me that scene where she puts her hand through that Trask guy and launches the Sentinels in uh, E is for Extinction. I also like that she She's in Shi'ar space and that won't go uncommented. Already she's, you know, in this issue battling Eric the Red and he's calling her Mama Dry Filth and has a real problem with her. And it makes me wonder whether or not that's a piece of this. Maybe some of the first mutants are mutant Mama Dry. I just don't know where we're going. It's nice not to have a story so telegraphed in a medium that gets kind of tropey sometimes. And in a story pocket that gets so tropey, like mm-hmm. full time all the time, mm-hmm. I feel like there's five Shi'ar stories stories and I see them a lot. So I I very much like the excitement of the potentiality of where this could all be going. That's the whole thing. I love when we first see her because she is rocking the same kind of, you know, energy that her character is supposed to have. And they went ahead and they just, they brought it right in. So it doesn't feel like they tried to sanitize or really clean up the character so that we could give her a redemption arc. It felt like they brought that same, holy shit, what is this creepy thing doing energy with her. So I'm here to see what Murder Auntie does. It's Cassandra Nova, not Cassandra Nerf her. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) And, you know, so I think one of the things that I love that everybody said really early on, big cast, big, big cast. And with such a big cast, everybody's kind of maybe getting a one of three voices sort of situation, which is, that's a totally valid style of writing. Like there's that old school sort of, you know, Norman Lear kind of everybody should have such unique dialogue that any single sentence should only be able to belong to any one character, which is vaguely impossible, especially if the line is, hey, so like, you know, but we all know that's Dazzler. So, um, <laughs> Um, I think the thing that makes it so important that who these characters are be true by actions is the sort of focus on style over dialogue. Now, it's not that Steve Orlando can't pull off tight dialogue. Anybody who takes a look at his previous series can see a real love of passionate wordplay. But I wanted to know how you guys feel about that trade-off. Some of the chaos of the art demands a softer hand with the letters, which means less lines. How do you guys feel about the interplay of story and visuals in this instance? I, I can't I actually like that they're relying on these beautiful dynamic visuals to lead the story versus being like seriously word heavy because with the visuals you get to kind of like play with it a bit more in your head it gives it that fun anime kind of feel where you're like oh yeah this is, it there's there's a lot of action there's a lot of fun going on but you don't want to also have to like read a block of text with character development in it because then that's just too very heavy things at one time on opposite sides of the spectrum. So I think, yeah, less words with more visual makes it slightly more fun and slightly more like 
readily digestible in my head. Yeah, coming off of reading some really dense early 90s Avengers battles, which are basically like half a page of text and half a page of art, I'm really enjoying how, you know, so much of the text like during the the fight that starts on page nine is like explaining what they're doing. Like it helps clarify what's happening in the art if the art's at all ambiguous. And these pages are just so energetic too. I like how on the fight pages, the panels tilt and overlap a lot more heavily versus the any like non-fight page everything's a little more standard and square and rigid and that really lends itself to the kind of movement happening here but it's, it's a very still, european sense of paneling it's a good balance i feel like a good balance is struck you're getting story development in the dialogue between protagonists and antagonists and you're getting exposition about the battle as the heroes are explaining what they're doing in the fight it's not too much it's not like you know telling us the whole history of the shiar empire and and the X-Men's history with the Shi'ar and, you know, having to get that story again and again in every issue, um, which is nice. Yeah, and they have really good info pages that actually do give quite a bit of, like, background and intrigue. So I think, honestly, that takes the place of more heavy dialogue within, you know, the art panels. Oh, yeah, that, the secrets, the shames of the Shi'ar, I'm yeah. so curious about that stuff. The first blood spilled is what we're, what we're here dealing with now. The theft of the hard skin, which has something to do with Cerise, former Excalibur member, and the birth of the wet skin, dunno. The one that really got me was the goblin extraction. What is she? I, I love you brought up Cerise because Kylan is having a month mm -hmm. over in Knights of X, and here's Cerise. Micromax was almost on an X-Men team. Somewhere out there, Alan Davis is like, yes, one day you'll all remember my Excalibur. <laughs> it's like that first issue. <laughs> it's the first issue of Rotors. Somebody remembered. I didn't think anyone remembered. Now, Arturo, as somebody who really, I mean, you grew up on 80s and 90s comics, but I mean, you're still here today. And the dynamic transformation of amount of verbiage on a page has been a humongous central focus of discussion. I mean, that whole time, like one of the key things that is cited as the downfall of 90s comics is when it started being just have a scripter come in because sometimes that scripter would just cover the art or under explain it. How do you feel about Steve Orlando's minimalist approach to scripting in regard to how much charge it puts the art in? See, I don't know how minimal it is. I feel like there was, like, Steve got a lot of runway here to tell a lot of story. And I think that they struck a, a good balance with the art. The action scenes are so kinetic that it, it worked for me. I mean, some of the dialogue during battle, it, I think, is easier to to stomach when it's all, like, telepathic, right? Because that kind of makes a little more sense. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> it's a subtle thing you know it's just the word bubble shaped a little bit differently but i i buy it so much more readily than than when somebody's actually speaking and doing a dialogue so or a monologue but i thought it was great i thought the i think the art is is really fun i think it yeah i'm sure it's not for everybody i'm sure some people get turned off by it but i really enjoyed it i like i like when people play with with styles a little bit i don't feel like for me necessarily a balance was struck in this issue 
I did sort of get caught up in the chaos a little bit. And again, you know, this is not a feeling like something was done wrong. It really just is my brain more than anything else. But I did sort of feel like the visual dynamism and sort of just explosive nature of so many panels at a certain point outweighed my ability to absorb what was going on and sort of create a good flow out of the story of what is mostly for this issue a lot of fight. It is a ton of fight broken up by a few other scenes that are really interesting, some data pages that are very interesting. It's a lot of stuff that I find very promising. But the big thing is this fight that goes on for a really long time is very visual heavy. And the capstone of the whole thing for me is the trip into Somnus's dreamscape, which is where things start to get really exciting, but also where things chill out a little bit and I'm able to sort of catch my breath. So I see stuff that I really like about this and stuff that I just definitely had some trouble connecting with, although I can see like just how it's really gorgeous and fun. That's totally fair. That is a fair assessment. One thing that I will say that is like a big difference from the, you know, Marauders 1.0, where that was so the Emma and Kitty show. Yeah. Right? Like, for better or worse, I personally loved it. I mean, I I would lament, like, you know, I wish we had some Bishop screen time or, you know, some Pyro and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I was always happy with what we got with Kitty. Here, I feel like it's flipped. Now, it's like... Kitty, we all know and love, she's established, so she's going to be more of a playing a role rather than being like a very deep character that we have to spend a lot of time in her interior. Let's focus on the rest of the cast. So I felt like Kitty was kind of like, I don't want to call her a placeholder, but she was, you know, she, she's the captain. And and so you're getting a lot more of the captain than you are of Kate Pride. Did anyone catch that backdoor eternal appearance? Oh yeah, Kingo in the dreamscape. Mm-hmm. Yes! Who Somnus remembers just as a... Uh... As an actor. Movie star from when he was in the 60s. I loved it. <laughs> Not only is Somnus imagining Kingo, but both Dokken and Aurora are also checking out Kingo. <laughs> it's well, a whole who thing. Would? Oh, this who would? Who would? <laughs> So I do have a question about about the nature of things, and I'm not referencing anything in particular other than the announcements that they've been talking about very publicly, how the Eternals and the X-Men are going to be connected through their past mm-hmm. somehow. And this book has the Shi'ar be like, we can't help our past. And I just want to be like, all right, editorial, I need you guys to take a step back. And the X office is famous for a lot of things, powerful commentary on, you know, uh, social relations, emotional connection, etc. One thing the X office is not very famous for is drawing a direct line between parallels as they try to frame them. And if they don't draw the direct line between Shi'ar and mutants and what's going on with the Eternals and mutants, mutants i'm going to flip my laptop yes a, a lot 100 percent, 100 percent. because this is this is yeah this is exactly this was my hope exactly from the from the beginning of the i mean i know that we're on issue two of this arc but okay that's um, a lot of time to hope though right yeah, you did talk about this last month we talked about this in our living room i remember distinctly go for it i think i talked about it during issue one coverage as well because this yeah. is this is i think the like this would really tighten things up historically drawing mm-hmm. the line between you know 1 million bc avengers phoenix the first team mutants, ever eternals you know ancient first mutants up in shiar space krakoa the second gen- like this summer event has the potential to really tighten up the story of 
like the history of earth in the marvel universe and the history of heroes in the marvel universe but do we think they're gonna do it right i'm really skeptical honestly like i i think that if they're smart they will say something like the eternals fought the first mutants and the first mutants left earth to get away from the eternals and went to the shiar space and the shiar i don't know stole their genes or something like that i I don't know something like that but like it would make sense nothing comes between me and my calvins and (laughs) and (laughs) phoenix of it all phoenix of it all would make more sense too if the original host of the phoenix was on earth went off into shiar space the shiar created you know over the last million years myths about the phoenix and like had a whole enmity created around it i mean it it would track and it would be nice and it would be great to see that sort of like someone has a unified vision for this stuff it, it well you certainly do i mean I'll, I'll be happy if this doesn't just like completely contradict the other thing I mean, I think there are so many options for how this could go. I'm liking the general inclination to remind readers and maybe, you know, remind the writers and editorial and everybody just to have in mind that, like, the universe is very old. No story is new. This has all happened before and will happen again. I like plugging that into big, you know, serial storytelling universes like this, that, you know, when the X-Men started, everybody thought that they were the first mutants and, you know, at the time that they were being written. And they really were but as the as our consciousness has expanded and as storytelling has gotten more complicated the idea that of course they're not the first and there were mutants Namor. thousands of years ago and now we're going back to millions of years ago because the universe is really old so millions of years ago isn't actually that old i love expanding in time and i think you know expanding in space and maybe talking about the shiar relationship to eternals and celestials it's just a huge sandbox to play in and i think anything that goes towards acknowledging the size of the sandbox and allowing writers to really pick into a mythos that we can take for granted is older than we realize, I think makes a lot of sense right now. Yeah, 100%. So let's get to the big stuff about the issue. I do think that the nature of comic book storytelling continuing to rely on this sort of false sense of the cliffhanger has nothing to do with the deficiency of any single issue, but rather the deficiency of a readership, myself included, beholden to the idea of 28 days between installments. You know, that's really more a statement about the way we interact with our media. But I recognize that this is going to be a long game. So these little steps in between are maybe a little tough for me because I found myself eager to follow Zandra, which has never happened. I, you know, it's one of those things where like down one aisle is Xandra and down the other aisle is I'm sure to get my ass kicked. And I'm like, how hard is the ass kicking? You know, so the fact that they managed to pull together two or three years of Xandra storytelling in a way I'm eager for. I also really love anybody taking a shot at Deathbird because now she's going to come kill you. So fucking funny. How did everybody feel about the continued elevation of Xavier's forgotten child? Because everyone's like, oh, you know, Legion. And I'm like, no, Legion. Legion's terrific. Xandra sucks. No, I'm really here for Xandra. The idea that Charles and Lalandra would have had a child is pretty believable to me. You know, their whole thing is, I mean, Doug said it himself, going out into space to have sex with a bird lady. Like, yeah, it's, you know, 
just proving that a guy will put his dick in anything he think he can? Bird day sex. Bird day sex. They did it. There's a baby. It's fully believable to me. Is she like a little bit like sexy baby grating and annoying? <laughs> <laughs> sexy yes. bird baby wants kingdom daddy. Yes. <laughs> oh God. Oh God. I almost choked on my cough. Oh but my hope is oh. that what started as kind of an ill-advised characterization. She's still <laughs> an ill-advised characterization. I want to see it build over time. I want to be looking back in five and ten years and be like, sexy baby Xander is even funnier now because she killed everybody and is terrifying. Like, I fully believe I'm a Xander apologist. I think we got a lot of potential here. Is it all going to come through in this story? I don't think so. But if we get a step closer to a fully realized child of the not bastard Prince of Krakoa, just the bastard on Krakoa and the, you know, Shi'ar Empress Supreme, I'm, I'm here for it. I hope Xandra falls for bird brain and like toughens him up and puts him in warrior gear. And yes. she's constantly like, bird daddy, feed bird baby the worm. Yes. And like, I need and it then so Beak bad. is their lieutenant. <laughs> Oh, they're burning. Oh, what did I just hear? Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) I am the queen of bad decisions. What the fuck was that? Wow. I don't think you need to apologize for Xandra or be an apology for her. I think she's cool. I think it's nice to see that these people have sex and have kids and age and that their progeny have to take over. And honestly, I didn't really like Melandra that much. And I think Xandra's a lot more interesting. I like seeing her struggle in her role. I like seeing her have to make hard choices and people trying to protect her and and she keeps having to throw off her protection. I just, I, I'm here for it. I, it gives me like- She's a childlike empress at 30. (laughs) Well, yeah, and she she definitely throws the whole sliding time scale for a loop because, like, she actually lines up with, like, real time, like, from when, Mm -hmm. you know, in our, in how we measure time years when Chuck was banging Lalandra, like, this, this makes sense. So I'm, I'm just grateful that Xandra had the, you know, the grace to come into continuity as, like, an actual character and not be a baby that we are straddled with forever who never ages and is always a baby. (laughs) Shogun. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Shogun's busy following his dragon dreams in other worlds god bless them everyone's getting a dragon right now though we've got a space dragon here too yeah i wasn't a fan of the space dragon i was like really (laughs) yeah hard light clones and that that was the hard one to swallow Yeah, right, right. Big Null tried to make Space Dragons cool last year, uh-huh. and Donnie Cates just kept pushing it, and now I think we're just stuck with Space Dragons as a motif. Oh, and I hate it. I really hate it. It's just like there's so many other creatures. Like I don't want to. I... I don't want to sit up on my couch and be an old man for a minute. But <laughs> um, like when Chris Claremont said that the definition of thinking outside the box was what if space was the ocean and the Akanti, these space whales, but they're like you know they're they're old than the idea of time itself and like their their habitats and ecosystems that exist within now i know that certainly parallels you know even things as uh, frivolously silly as pinocchio so like we're creating the idea that you can live inside the whale and build a society within to escape but like there's something about there's uh, the edge lordification of it they're you know the she are bird people but they're bird people with like a plume on their head they're not bird people like we are birds of war caw 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 
like coming at you. You know what I mean? Hmm. This I'll this idea right. that we only have big scary violence as a way of showing intimidation is really reductive, and it's just unfortunately a big trope throughout the medium. Not this one book right now. I I always keep forgetting that they're supposedly you know the ancestor or the the descendants of birds. Like I remember when I read it, but then my brain promptly like throws it out the window because they look so freaking humanoid and they don't have any other bird-like features than you know feathers in place of hair that's always worked for me though i'm i'm totally okay with that but i want more like be like be bright be beautiful like have some of them have iridescent plumage like look at the wildlife that we have on this planet alone and the vast array of how they have developed and then look at shiar and everybody's got black feathers I'm that's like, a good point they right, do have yeah, very like, boring like, plumage who, who's building a nest right who's shitting on my car like but come I, on give me I some did other like bird uh, qualities i did like this the history there because in uh in hickman's avengers new avengers he had it that the builder and the guy with the big omega on his chest and the girl who could do black holes and they like made the shiar from bird people into like humanoids i definitely remember exactly what you're talking about but equally cannot remember the specifics and i am a little bit more up on my shiar lore from thor from Mm -hmm. the asgard shiar war where the gods of the shiar are very unfriendly shiar and kithri yeah they're bummers are they also birds kill each other like they were a married couple and they like but they're you know but they're gods so like you know you kill yourself for dinner you come back for dessert (laughs) the city gods you know it's just what they do everybody's always just chasing that kill each other high so oh ex nihilo and his sister abyss those are the characters oh yeah the yeah i think one big thing we can all pretty much agree on is that we are reaching a place where shiar lore is becoming so complex (laughs) that i find it really interesting that you know we have the scroll and the kree and they're treated almost dynastically in terms of their position in the marvel universe it's not unheard of for a super scroll to show up somewhere every other third person is part kree it's just what we do now uh, but you know when a Shi'ar person shows up you're kind of like oh motherfucking bird okay and like they still haven't really accepted their haven't accepted any place in the greater Marvel universe and that would be something that was that would be really cool to come out of this title what do you guys hope to see come out of Marauders as we continue on through Steve Orlando's reimagining of Jerry Dugan's team of mutant pirates who were on international humanitarian missions of goodwill and now we're space pirates chasing that sweet evolution through time magic birds give bird baby the worm so um how do you guys feel going into these next couple of issues where the marauders are certainly nothing like we've ever seen them before dude i'm just ready for more space pirates mayhem actually a bit of intrigue and possibly sexy baby bird getting the ever-loving shit slapped out of them i would like and i don't expect this to happen in the next you know two or three issues but i would like to get to a place where we have like some quiet moments for the marauders and i kind of want to get into some of the soapiness I want to, you know, get into the messiness with Dokken and Aurora and uh, and Somnus and kind of like, I, I, I want some more of that. I want some kind of 
and it felt like maybe with Marauders 1.0, we kind of got there too much. Like it was like, wait, where are all the missions? Why are we just, you know, doing this? Um, but I kind of want that here. I, I, I think, and if I was starting, you know, with an issue one, issue two, like, yes, I'd come out of the gate with big battles and, you know, splash pages. And I totally get that. I, I think the instinct makes total sense. Uh, but I'm looking forward to a little a little more peaceful kind of cadence and, and just kind of see what he does with these characters. And I, I need more tempo. Like, please, like, we got tempo on a team. It is 2022 and we got tempo in the mix. Like, let's do something with her that's not just power feats. Honestly, I think the only messiness between Somnus, Aurora, and Dokken is going to be in the form of lube. So, <laughs> yeah. Which, yes, love that. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to get the the shoe dropping on whatever suspect like the the story suspenses. I want to see what these these Shi'ar secrets are. I want to see who these first mutants are. I'm like, I am along for the ride. And yeah, I'm with you both. I really, I really want to see a little more drama between Somnus, Aurora, and Dokken because I just I find it a little un. Like it's pleasant, but it's a little unbelievably pleasant. And I want, I want, I want all those feelings in there and I want them explored. Well, the, the funny thing is, uh, I sort of am living through slash lived through a- almost an exact situation like this. Somebody I dated for six years is my best friend. And I introduced my best friend to another friend and they are the same gender. <laughs> and they got together and they've been married for 11 years and they're still my best friends. And I love them to bits and pieces. So to me, I'm like, yeah, no, that tracks. I'm a big old poly slut. So like, I just think everybody should be happy with everybody. But you know, and it's funny because like, I'm like, I'm like, look, not every example of polyamorism needs to involve some sort of dark underbelly for the sake of your fucking dramedy on 10 p.m. on HBO Max. Like, it doesn't always need to be that. You know what I mean? Right. But like, there is this level of, are you for real? Like, that if you don't ever have a moment, that awkward moment, that awkward moment that's just so real where like the third partner walks in and just isn't in the fucking mood and sees the first two partners doing it and it's not that there's anything wrong with the other two doing it by themselves but the third partner's like look I've just my dick is not in this right now okay and I just I I really just wanted to come into my bedroom for five fucking minutes you know what I mean and like that's just a human emotion that's not you're looking for a fight polyamorism doesn't work like it is just there's moments and if we never see those moments it dehumanizes and derealizes not that this is some you know perfect poly unit just this idea that even in the best most harmonious open-minded progressive sexual situations someone's gonna have a bad day and that's okay to show as long as you have them grow from i i do love that aurora is so completely okay with it it's it's almost like unnerving to Dokken that that's kind of like her angle I love that it's that she's not sulking around jealous and being like where's Somnus you know what I mean like that would have been real tiring real fast but Mm -hmm. this is this is kind of cool I love that like I I like Aurora in this a lot more than than I think I expected to ultimately I think it's probably going to be up to someone like Kieran Gillen to show us Gene Scott Emma and Logan having just a terrible time doing 
having schedule stuff and that devolving into just a horrible fight between them. Yeah, but I mean, as long as they grow from it. Yeah, they'll like, grow yeah. from it. They'll, you know, they'll set aside certain partner hours. But I just think it's, you know, it's a whole issue of them not being able to decide when two of them get to go grocery shopping, when's date night, who's picking who up from where. And Cyclops is like, if you would just download the fucking calendar app like we've asked you, we would exactly. all have, and Logan refuses. Yeah, Exactly. Totally. I don't want to join some Slack. You already made me install yeah. Discord to watch <laughs> wait, wait, wait. For, forget forget fat fingering the pad on a phone if he accidentally pops a claw at the wrong time there goes the screen that's why you get the insurance and awesome. emma's like if you ask me to hang my cape on the door one more fucking time logan <laughs> one more time logan and diamond scott, and flat. scott's like i got something you can fat finger <laughs> There is no better final line than that. Has anybody not given their hopes for the future? I technically haven't, but I really am just along for the ride. You know, I came out of this at a, I remember this story coming out of Secret X-Men and there was a really smooth handoff into Marauders. I'd love to see Marauders develop this over only a couple more issues and then let's get another handoff, move Marauders on. I'd love to see the story continue, but it's a big one. So I'd love to see it be a through line in many other stories and not wrap the whole thing up in Marauders. Mm Mm-hmm. I would like to see the Star Jammers turn up at some point because mm-hmm. that's that feels inevitable. <laughs> it does. We're talking about how this takes it to eleven, but Storm is in space, and that's a fourteen. Yeah. So like, if this doesn't go to X Men Red, I'm not interested. Like, you go find yourself on Araco and you pay tribute to Storm, or you get out of my X office. Hell's yeah. 